Yes, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, my name is Kendall Age. I serve as one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Well, I wonder if you've ever walked into a situation making assumptions. You walked in and you made some assumptions. Maybe it was into a business setting and you got in there and then you realized, wow, they are not after what I thought they were after. Or maybe you made some assumptions about a person. Maybe it was, you know, that kind of first impression that you had. But on getting to know them, you realized, wow, everything I thought I knew about them from that first impression was wrong. It's dangerous to make assumptions. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. I think what's uh, most dangerous for us, though, is when we, um, when we make assumptions that we don't even know we're making. Because that just sounds like truth in our head, doesn't it? You know, when you're making an assumption and you don't even know, like if you know you're making it, then you're somewhat safe ground. But if you don't even know, it just sounds like, feels like the truth. I think the, the worst place for us to be is when we are assuming our own assumptions, and we're not even aware that we're making them. I wonder if we ever are in a position where we are making assumptions about God and about how God works, because we might be doing that and not even know that we're doing that. You know, the scripture was given so that we wouldn't be stuck with our assumptions about God, but so that we could know true things about God. And today, we're going to be looking in Matthew 20, Jesus unpacks some assumptions about God and about his reign and about how he, he works that are common, common to us, common to his disciples. So let me give you the setting. We're going, to, we're going to be at the beginning of Matthew 20, but at the very end of the previous chapter, if you weren't with us last week, Jesus had just mentioned this idea of rewards, that there are rewards in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what it says in verse 29 of, of chapter 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He's talking about this following Christ, sacrificing to follow Christ, and there will be a reward for that. And he's aware that having just talked about rewards, his disciples and us are going to be tempted to make some assumptions about those rewards and about the God who gives rewards to his servants. And so the unsettling last verse of chapter 19 says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first, which that's where it left off last week. And in a sense, it, 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 what? What is he talking about? What, what does he mean by that? Well, that, that verse there at the end of chapter 19 is a great example of a bad um, chapter division that was put in our Bibles. Um, it shouldn't have been done right there. It should have been done right before that verse. Because look at, if you've got your Bible open, right? We're talking about that last verse of chapter 19. It should be in chapter 20, because look at verse 16 of chapter 20, which says, so the last will be first and the first last. So these are bookends to what we're going to be looking at 
this morning. Jesus talking about the first being last and the last being first. What is this except the upsetting of our expectations, the undoing of what we expected things to be? God does not always work according to our assumptions. So we're going to look at this section beginning in the last verse of chapter 19 uh, down through verse 16, but I want to start with just uh, down through verse 7. So let's, let's read this together, and this is God's word. But many who are first will be last, and the last first, chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing, standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again, the sixth hour and the ninth, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. We'll continue reading it in a few minutes after we kind of comment on the parable that Jesus is telling. And this is a parable. He says at, in verse one, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he begins to tell a story. So he's, he's making a comparison between the kingdom of heaven, which we can't see, and something that we are familiar with. And I've got to warn you, he's doing this to unearth not just secrets of the kingdom, but assumptions in our heart, things that we would assume about God and about the way that he works. So we meet this master of a house in verse one. There's a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Clearly, the master of the house is meant to picture God. This is God in his vineyard. That is God over his kingdom. The vineyard being the place where his servants work and labor and toil. It's an Old Testament picture of the place where the people of God work. And so the people of God are, are those who are these laborers who are being hired by God in his vineyard. So we see a per certain eagerness about the master of the house here. It says, he went out early. The, the more literal is kind of before the dew had evaporated. So perhaps with the first rising of the sun, the master of the house is out hiring workers. And that's what he's there to do. He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now we need to understand kind of, this is an economic parable, okay? So Jesus is using this, this economic picture. We need to understand the economic situation. So uh, there was a group of people who were kind of day laborers. That's what they did. And so they would get up, they go to the marketplace, they'd stand around and hope to get hired. And these were great folks to have around, say that maybe the vineyard needed to be, you know, gathered in. You need a lot more workers at a time like that. So you can go, you can hire day laborers. So day laborers, 
typically were hired, I know this is surprising, for a day, right? They'd be hired for one day. You'd hire them at the beginning. You'd pay them at the end. And, and they would make enough that day for their family for that day. So it was very much a kind of hand-to-mouth lifestyle. Um, this, right, I mean, this, this still fits in our culture. These aren't the ones with six-figure salaries, right? These are the ones that need to get paid at the end of the day because their kids need to eat at the end of that day. To be a day laborer there was a very unstable place to be. It was the least stable position in the working part of society. Um, even slaves, now slaves would make a little bit less daily than the day laborers, but they knew they'd get paid every day. And they knew they had a place to stay that was paid for. And they knew they would have food that was provided that night. So even slavery had more stability than per, for this particular group of folks who depended entirely on someone hiring them that day in order to provide for their family. Verse two says, he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. Again, Jesus is just, he's just speaking to a group that, that understand how life works there. They all heard that and said, oh yeah, that's a good, reasonable daily rate for folks to make. So this was just a typical amount of money uh, for them to make. Now, you know, in my translation, and yours might be a little bit different, um, it, it translates it exactly as it was written, these different hours. So he goes out first, you know, when the dew is, is still on the ground. And then it says, uh, going out the third hour, he saw them. And then it says the sixth hour, and then the ninth, then the 11th. So what, is, what does this mean? It's not the same, like, clock that we use, okay? So they would basically say that sunrise was the beginning of the day, the zeroth hour, if you will. So the third hour would be three hours after sunrise. So if we say that sunrise is at six in the morning, then the third hour is roughly nine o'clock. And the sixth hour is roughly noon. And the ninth hour is roughly three in the afternoon. And the 11th hour is roughly five in the evening. And these guys were working 12-hour days. That was, that's a lot of, that's a lot of labor. So they'd get going at six in the morning and they'd be expected to work until six in the evening. And that's as the parable ends, when he pays everybody, all right? So he is paying them a denarius for a full workday. Now, this is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting guy, this, this owner of the vineyard, because you would think that most owners would go out and they would hire people in the morning and send them to work and then get on about their day. But we don't find this owner doing that. And this begins to bump us up towards our first assumption and the first thing that we see different about the owner of the vineyard. So he agreed with the laborers and sent them out. He was up early. He got those, sent them out into the vineyard. Then it says, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing, standing idle in the marketplace. It doesn't say that he went out needing to hire more. It just says he went out and saw people standing around idle. In other words, their idleness was the cause for his action. He saw them, he saw them idle, and therefore he said, hey, why are you standing around idle? 
Let's, why, don't, why don't you come to work and I'll pay you what is right? And then again, he did the same thing in the sixth hour and the ninth hour. And then again at the 11th hour. Now, do you remember what time is the 11th hour? The 11th hour is 5 o'clock p.m. What owner of a vineyard in their right mind is going out at 5 o'clock in the evening to hire workers who are going to take off from work when the bell sounds at 6? But here he is at 5 o'clock in the evening. Why do you stand here idle all day, he said to them. Now, we might hear this, I think, with a little bit of a Western tinge to our ears and hear it as a rebuke. You lazy bums, why have you been here idle all day? That's not the intent of what he's saying. He's asking them the question, how is it that you are still here not working? And they give the honest answer to the honest question, because no one has hired us. Now, you see, they, they are there and they're ready to work, but nobody's hired them. This is a desperate situation for a day laborer at five o'clock in the evening, because in an hour, he's going to get to go home and look those kids in the eye. That's, that's what his future looks like at this point. So he says, because no one's hired us. And so the owner says, you go into the vineyard too. So here's the first assumption that we, we run up against. Because this is an economic parable, and we're used to how economic things work, we assume that the master hires because, workers because he needs them. Right? Isn't that why masters hire workers? Because he needs work to be done? That's our entering assumption. That's what we're thinking as we see this. That's surely that's what got him out of bed early in the morning, right? Because he needed more workers. And yet, as we see his hiring practices, that becomes less and less and less plausible. We don't see a master who is out after all he can get out of his workers. That's not what he's doing at all. In fact, what he's doing over and over is going after workers because they need the work. He's not going after workers because he needs them. He's going after the workers that need him. That's why he's back hour after hour after hour searching and looking for those he might hire. He is hiring based on the needs of the workers, not the needs of his vineyard. And so he goes and he hires one after the other after the other. Friends, we might just think of this as those who become saved in their youth. I had the glorious privilege of coming to Christ when I was six years old. Praise God. That would be the fresh time of the day. Others, the Lord comes out into the marketplace and invites them at the third hour when they're teens. Others in the sixth hour in their 20s and 30s. Others in the ninth hours in their 40s and 50s. And still others in the 11th hour, like the thief on the cross who had nothing to offer Jesus whatsoever. He could labor not at all. You know, you hire somebody at five o'clock until six o'clock, 
They've got time to like walk to the vineyard, ask the foreman what to do and be done. Like they got absolutely nothing done. Practically speaking, you get, you get nothing out of them. And that is the entire point. God does not call people based upon what he can get out of them. He calls people based upon what they need from him. Praise God that he calls us throughout our lives. And friend, wherever you are in your life, whether you're the youngest person in the room right now or the oldest person apart from Christ right now, his word speaks to you. There's a master of the house who's coming out today to invite you to work in his vineyard and to call you to himself. And so long as you are still breathing, it's not the 12th hour yet, and you may yet turn and follow after him. So our first assumption that the master hires because he needs them, we've seen that that is not indeed the case at all. The second assumption, though, we're going to need to look at the next section of our text. So let's keep reading. We had dropped off with verse 7. I want to pick back up with verse 8 and carry it on to the end. So Matthew 20, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled, the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The next assumption that we see comes out of this grumbling that begins, right? So the master goes to his foreman at the end of the day and says, okay, start paying people. I want you to pay those who are most recently arrived first. And this was the first bit of the last being first and the first being last that we see. And so he, he calls those who had just arrived. Remember, right? They've at best done an hour's worth of work and probably not that much. And he gives them a full denarius, a full day's pay. No doubt they're stunned, although we don't hear about their response. We do hear about the response of the others and particularly those who were the first ones to be hired. They begin to grumble at the Lord. I think one of the assumptions that we can see here, we assume that the master, that is God, will reward his servants based on what they do for him. And that those who do more for God will get a bigger reward from God. But you can see that the way that God thinks about this, the thing that he's doing is that he rewards not based upon what labor he gets out of people. He rewards based upon the need 
of his people. Which of them needed a full day's pay? All of them. All of them needed a full day's pay. And so he provides for them based upon their need, not based upon their perceived uh, effort or, or amount that they have gotten done for him. Verse 11, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Here's the next assumption that for some, the master withholds what they have earned. They think that the master has withheld something. He is a stingy master, not giving us what we deserve. Friend, you ever have that sense before God? Tremble at that wicked thought. Glory to God that he does not give us what we deserve. Praise be to God that he does not give us what we deserve. Those that stand before God and ask for what they deserve will sadly receive exactly that. Hide yourself in Christ. Ask not for what you deserve from God. Praise God that Christ has taken all that we deserve in terms of wrath and the anger of God against our deliberate, repeated, ongoing sin that was nailed to the cross and and we bear it no more. Praise God. So on one hand, um, on one hand, the master of the house does withhold from his servants what they deserve, if you know what I mean by that. And we praise God that he does. But on the other hand, the whole, the whole discussion here, the master withholds what his workers have earned. This is, this is where the big assumption really lies, is that, is that we are earning things with God in any way at all. The whole economic situation set us up for this, because in an economic situation, of course, you earn your pay. That's how it works in an economy. That's Therefore, see, therefore, that must be how it works with God. And Jesus is saying, no, stop. This is not how it works with God. What God gives is God's gift. It's not earned ever. It's not earned. So God, the master, gives, and everything he gives, he gives first justly. He is just in all that he does. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong, no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I am just in all that I do. No man on the last day will call God his debtor. No man on the last day will say, God did me wrong. He gave me less than what I deserved. None can open their mouth before God and, and claim that God has given less than what was just. He is just in all that he gives. But then also, he is generous. The master gives generously. 
verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I am being generous. I am being just. Yes, I gave you the denarius that we agreed to. And I'm being generous. I'm giving to each of my servants precisely what they need. Not less than what they need just to make you happy. I'm giving them precisely what they need because I'm going to be generous. Everything that our Lord gives, he gives justly, he gives generously. Number three, he gives sovereignly. He gives sovereignly. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, friend, listen to the Lord here. What are we talking about? We're talking about that reward which comes on the last day. What is the reward which comes on the last day except salvation itself, except living forever in the presence of God? Is this not what his servants need? Is this not what makes all of us the same, that we come to God needy sinners, that we come to God with a, with a destination away from God, but he picks us up, he sets us on the path that leads to life. He calls us by name. And, and on that last day, we will see him face to face. That's the reward. The reward is knowing and living with God forever. And God is very clear that he gives this reward justly every time, generously every time, and sovereignly every time. Am I not allowed Whew. That is a, that's a loud phrase from the voice of God. Am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is a gift from God, sovereignly given, justly given, generously given. All praise to God. I need a drink. <coughs> Last assumption that we're going to look at. That some of them seem to think it was a burden to work for such a master as this. Verse 12. These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day of the day and of the scorching heat. Don't you know how hard it was to work for you all day long? This may be compared to the one who is saved at a young age and who is bitter that God would call somebody on their deathbed to come to Christ. All my life long, I've given up this and I've given up that. All my life long, it's been toil and burden and the heat of the day and the persecution and the difficulties and you are unjust to make them equal to me. Jesus reveals the problem in this little phrase at the end of verse 15. I don't know how your version translates it. Mine says, do you begrudge my generosity. Now, 
That makes sense, right? Do you begrudge my generosity? You see me being generous and, and that makes you upset. Here's, here's the wooden translation, the more direct. You might actually have it in a note. I have it in a note in my Bible. Mine is note four, which simply says, is your eye bad because I am good? Is your eye bad because I'm good? Now, clearly this goodness is his generosity, right? He's being generous. And this begrudging, he calls it having a bad eye. Do we have an unjust master? Is it a burden to labor for such a master as this? It is if your eye is bad. The problem is in the eye of the beholder. The problem is not in the master, but in the one perceiving the master. It is a bad eye which looks on goodness and is upset by it. To look upon goodness and justice and sovereign generosity and to call it bad is the fault of the seer, not the fault of the master. Friend, if you would have a master who would reward you based precisely on what you do for him, based upon what he can get out of you. If you would have a master that pays out with a miserly hand and that counts every minute on your time card with a suspicious eye, if you would have a master who requires every penny you get from him to be earned and demands that every gift given be fully paid for, if you would have a master who will give you exactly what you deserve, then you have come to the wrong place because this master is not that one. He is just and generous and good, and it is a delight to serve one such as he. One with a good eye sees the goodness of the master and delights to serve him. Friend, the point here is that it was an honor, in fact, to be the ones that he came out early for. Were you saved at a young age? Give glory to God. Oh, that he came after you in your youth and rushed to your side and called you out into his vineyard. Give praise to God for doing that for you. This is a master worth serving with all of our days. In fact, I, I believe, I mean, though I was saved young, I haven't, I haven't labored effectively in the vineyard my whole life. I think all of us on our deathbed are going to have that, oh, oh, it's over. Couldn't I have done more for him? Couldn't I have been more faithful in the vineyard while the sun was still up? Couldn't I have, couldn't I have repaid him a little more for his generous, good, wonderful mercy to me? Friend, whether you were brought in at the sunrise or at the 11th hour, I think that's the heart of the saint that looks upon him and his mercy and says, oh, he's worth serving. He's worth serving with all that I have. Here's the master of the vineyard. He hires laborers, not because he needs them, 
but because they need him. And then he rewards not based on how much he can get from them, but he rewards based on what they need from him. He delights to be just. He delights to be generous. He delights to be good. It is no burden to labor for such a master as this. A couple applications for us from this. Um, I wonder who the youngest person in the room is. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But if, you're, if you might qualify, you can even look around. Who's the youngest person in the room? All right? If you think I might be talking to you, I am. Gladly serve him from your youth. You are not too young to serve this one. And he is a wonderful, wonderful master. You will not regret a lifetime spent serving him. Serve him from your youth. It is an honor to bear the heat of the day in serving the Lord. Friend, if you do know the Lord, whenever you came to know the Lord, then this calls us to rejoice that we were hired. <laughs> right? Rejoice. You know what the master of the house could have done? Stayed in the house while there were all kinds of laborers gathering at different times of the day needing hire. And he didn't. Comes out to the marketplace over and over and over and over again. So were you saved in your youth? Then give glory to God. Were you saved in your 20s? Then give glory to God. Did he save you in your 60s? Then give glory to God. Praise God for such a master as this who loves his servants and comes after his ser servants. I think the next application then, friends, labor in the vineyard. Let's be about this. Let's be about doing the work he's called us to do fulfilling the purpose that he's put us here for. Put off selfishness. Put off self-focus. What's the Lord put you in the vineyard for? What has he put you here to do? I don't know if you've felt this. I've, I've seen over the past three, four, five months here at Mercy Hill, the Lord's just, he's moving us forward in some ways as a church. There are an increasing number of opportunities for us to be about serving in the vineyard of Spotsylvania County, whether it's the pioneer girls and boys that we get to be investing in in our own church, or it's Brace as we get to be preparing to go out into the community and care for them, or whether it's inviting people to your home for Thanksgiving this week that don't have a place to stay, or inviting people to church for Christmas Eve service that's coming up in a month. What? Be about the work that the Lord's called you to. Don't become so distracted in life that you've forgotten that we are laborers in his vineyard. This is not a role for pastors only. This is not a role for care group leaders only. This, this is what God has called all of his people to. He's, he's hired us. He saved us and hired us to be about laboring in his vineyard. The last thing I want to point to is in verse 8, simply says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages. Friend, 
evening's coming. Evening's coming. I don't know when your evening will be, but I look out on a group of people, every one of whom evening is coming. It comes inevitably for all of us. Evening is coming, and on that day, we will encounter the Lord. Friend, if you've never turned to Christ, you've never become a servant of God as this pictures, then let me just let me invite you today to hear the voice of God in this text, the one who comes out again and again looking for workers, to, to call you away from the life that you have, the pursuits that you have, the loves that you have, to repent of all that and to turn to Christ and to, to make him your God, your king, the one that you serve, the one that you worship. If you've never turned to him, I would encourage you, turn to him today. Follow him from this day to that day because that day is coming. This is not a scare tactic that pastors use. This is a reality for human life. And it frankly is a reality we don't give enough attention to as Americans. That evening comes for all of us. Don't live like it doesn't. That's folly and foolishness. Prepare for the evening, friend. Respond to the Lord and come follow after him. But for those that are following after him, then guess what? The evening, it's good news because that's when you get paid, right? Like, I mean, I'm saying we, there's something about death we don't look forward to. I get that. I get that. But you know that feeling like it's payday today. At the end of the day, I'm taking that check. I'm on my way. It's payday. Like, that's the time people look forward to, right? It's five o'clock in the afternoon, friend. Don't mourn that it's five o'clock in the afternoon. Payday's coming. Glory to God. Rejoice. It's inevitable. You will see him and he will give your reward. Praise God for inevitable promises, for the grace of God that we can all look forward to. We can anticipate that day. So between this day and that day, we need strength for the vineyard, don't we? We need strength for that vineyard. And so I'm going to close by giving us a time to kind of reflect and to ask the Lord for strength to serve in his vineyard. And we're going to do that by taking communion together. Communion is a visible representation of our need for Jesus. And we need him to get us from this day to that day.